Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. chapter 12, beginning in verse 35, and the word of the sovereign Lord reads, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him Gladly. Um, the late A.W. Tozer wrote, Jesus is not one of many ways to approach God, nor is he the best of several ways. He is the only way. Who is Jesus Christ? It's one of the most important questions that everyone must answer for themselves, and everyone must answer the question. Everyone. And the reality is that everyone does answer the question one way or the other. In some form or fashion, everybody answers the question. Whether it's right or wrong, everyone has a perspective on Jesus Christ. For some, Jesus is simply a notable Jewish character, a Jewish man in history who profoundly influenced the world. We're still talking about him now, 2,000 years later. For others, he's a mythical character that was made up by religious zealots to promote their perspective and faith. Others say that he was a brilliant teacher and a wonderful example of what it means to be human. Others will say that he was a prophet like all the prophets that were before him and wasn't even the greatest of prophets. Some will say that he's Michael the archangel and that he was a created being who became into the world and become a man. Others will say that Jesus was an exalted man, a man who worked his way up to godhood just like his father before him and like his father before him and so on and so forth. Some people, Jesus Christ is simply the name that we use when we get irritated or frustrated or surprised. For some most popular today, today, Jesus is this soft-spoken, always nice Jewish man with a beard who just wants everybody to be happy and everybody to get along. There is no shortage at all of answers to the question of who is Jesus Christ. But the truth is this. This is one of the most important questions a person will ever face in all of their life. Because how you answer this question is the difference between being safe in the kingdom and still being outside. The question literally has within itself life and death. The fact is, if you you get this question wrong, It doesn't matter what else you believe. That's the bottom line truth. It doesn't matter how sincere you believe the things that you believe. It doesn't matter what kind of person you become. It doesn't matter how much, how hard you try. It doesn't matter how much you love everyone else around you. If in fact, right, you get this wrong, it doesn't matter even if you love Jesus. I hear people say all the time, well, I love Jesus. He loves Jesus. She loves Jesus. That's good. You should love Jesus. Everybody should love Jesus. But but that's not the question. The question is, do you know Jesus? That's the question. Do you really know who he is? Because if you don't, it doesn't matter if you love him. If you don't know who Jesus is, then you're just like everyone else. You're still outside of the kingdom, which is exactly what we saw last week for this scribe. He witnessed that Jesus was very wise in his dealings with the Sadducees. He was very, very astute. And, 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 he, and he asked Jesus the, the most hotly debated question of the time, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the scribe understood that Jesus was right, and he recognized that this summary of the law is greater than all of the commandments and all of the rituals and all of the traditions and all of the rules of their religion. And he could see that a relationship with God was more than all of these external things that he's been raised to believe. The essence of what God requires, he understands, 
is perfect love and devotion to God and perfect love for other people. And Jesus said, because of his understanding, because this man understood these things, that he was now close to the kingdom. You were close, right? He says to the scribe, because he can see the emptiness of, and the vanity of religion. But this, but this man was not in the kingdom because he does not know yet who Jesus really is. And because of that, he doesn't know that he needs Jesus. That's what we see a lot in the world around us today. People of every religion, people who are very religious, right? they can see that faith in God is more than, than a, re a religion. It's a relationship. They can see that God's standard for a relationship is, is perfection. And they might even be able to see that they need to be saved because they can't live up to that standard. But if they don't know who Jesus really is, then they're still outside of the kingdom. This is one of the most important questions a person can answer. Who is Jesus Christ? Well, today, Jesus himself will give us the answer to this question. He's going to tell the crowd and us who he really is. And what you need to realize in order to fully appreciate this and understand this, that this moment right now is a crescendo in Mark's gospel. This is a point of, that the entire story has been building and moving towards is this moment right here, right? As it makes its way towards its eventual climax, which is the death and resurrection of Christ, this moment right here is a high point of the story. Everything that Mark has been talking about has been leading up to this moment, where Jesus is going to shatter the stereotype of what everyone else thinks the Messiah should be and what the Messiah has come to do. And to fully appreciate this, you need to kind of like, we need to think back a little bit in context and see how Mark has been, has been masterfully building this story to this point in order to put on full display of who Christ is and what he's come to do. And it begins in, in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. If you, in fact, if you have your Bibles, just, just turn with me really quick there. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Right? This is Mark's opening declaration. Mark says this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's been a while since we've been in Mark chapter 1. Right? But let us never lose sight on how Mark opens his gospel up. Mark opens his gospel up with the declaration of something that we all need to see and understand and believe. That Jesus is the Christ. That he is the Messiah. Right? Christ is not his last name, by the way. Right? Christ literally means Messiah or anointed one. And not only does he declare that Jesus is the Messiah, he also declares that he is the son of the living God. He, the Messiah, is the Son of God. Mark, being a Jewish man, knows exactly what he's saying, by the way, when he says this. He's saying that Jesus is not just some human being. He's not just some man. He is, in fact, God the Son. He is God incarnate. This is the opening declaration of his gospel. And that is, in fact, the point of the statement that Jesus is going to make in this text. That the Messiah is not just some man, but God in the flesh. That is the point of the text, by the way. In fact, if you want to get ahead of me and write that down, that's the point. Right? Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, is not just some man. He is God in the flesh. He is he is God incarnate, and Mark opens his gospel that way. But what you need to understand is Mark doesn't just make that statement in isolation, and he doesn't just record Jesus you know, affirming that later on. Mark sets out through his gospel to prove this statement over and over and over again. He records all kinds of events that demonstrate clearly that Jesus is not just some anointed person, but indeed that he is fully divine. Right? which, again, is affirmed by his baptism. The moment of his baptism, we see the entire Trinity is present in time and space, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in his baptism, God the Father affirmed very clearly that this is my beloved Son. This is a confirmation that Christ is indeed divine. 
And then as Mark goes forward, he demonstrates Jesus is sovereign over all things. That Jesus is sovereign over the physical world. That he, he heals all, uh, he does all manner of miracles healing people. He heals people physically from sickness and injury and infirmity. He heals them in person. He heals them at a distance. He has sovereignty over the created order. And then he demonstrates that Christ is sovereign over the spiritual world as well, casting out demons everywhere he's, where he goes. And in one case, he cast out a legion of demons, all of which, by the way, recognize who he is and submit to his lordship because he is sovereign over the spirit world. But not only that, he's sovereign. Uh, not only is he sovereign, but Mark records that Jesus gets to exercise divine prerogatives, prerogatives that only God gets to do. If you remember the story, right, where, where, where Jesus is in Peter's house and he's teaching and the house is full and these guys show up carrying their friend on a stretcher. They can't get in the house and they climb up on the roof, tear the roof off the place, lower the man down. What does Jesus say to the man? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And the people in the room rightly go, wait a minute, <laughs> only God can do that. And Jesus made a point to say, by the way, here's proof that I can do that. Jesus affirms his divine prerogative of forgiveness, but he also exercises his prerogative over creation. Jesus not once but twice took a couple of small fish and fed thousands of people, basically creating sustenance for all these people out of nothing. Only God can do something like this. And Jesus, by speaking his word, causes not one but two storms to stop. And Jesus also, by speaking his word, demonstrates not only can he create, but he can also destroy by the power of his word. When, we, when he encountered the fig tree, if you remember, just recently. Jesus demonstrates his master over creation as he walks on the surface of the water during the storm. And then, if you remember, that, that Peter then was invited to do the same thing. Jesus demonstrated his mastery over life and death. Not only did he heal people, but he brought people back to life who were verifiably dead. That's why Lazarus laid in the tomb for four days, that he was verifiably dead. In addition to that, Mark records several details that reminds us that, that not only is Christ omnipotent, but he's omniscient as well. He knows the thoughts of people. And then if that were not enough to see who the truth of who Christ is, he records the moment where Jesus reveals his glory to Peter, James, and John on the mountain, at the Mount of Transfiguration. And again, not only that, Jesus' enemies understand what Jesus is claiming to be. That's why they want to kill him. Right? They rightly recognize that Jesus, that when Jesus said he can, that, that he can forgive sins, that he's claiming God's prerogative there. Right? And for them, not only is Jesus a lawbreaker, a Sabbath breaker, but he is also a blasphemer. He even claimed to have lordship over the Sabbath himself. Right? And not only that, right? not only did, in fact, in, in fact, before he raised Lazarus from the dead and before he came to Jerusalem, the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus even removed all doubt for them. In the, in the Gospel of John, we, we find out that he has a conversation with the Pharisees and he gets right blunt with them and, and tells them that he's the great I am. And they understood exactly what he was saying. You know why? They picked up rocks to kill him because they knew exactly what he was claiming. He was claiming to be Yahweh incarnate. He wasn't claiming to just be a man. And so Mark records for us in vivid detail their vile hatred and desire to kill him. They seek to kill him over and over again. They just haven't found a way to do it to this point. And then what does Jesus do after all of this? After all of this, what does he do? Jesus then purposefully fulfills specific prophecy and he rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey to the shouts and the praises of the people in the city clearly demonstrating by his action that he is in fact the king and that he is in fact the Messiah. Right? The Christ that everybody has been waiting for. And the city is electric with anticipation to this point. And then what does he do? He comes to the temple and he exercises his authority as the king. And he drives out the money changers and the merchants who have set up shop in the court of the Gentiles. He physically drives them out and he judges them. And then this controversy ruffles political feathers and, and the muckety-mucks, the, the Sanhedrin, the elites of the elites come out to, to confront him and try to intimidate him and put him in his place but he masterfully outmaneuvers them and demonstrates they have no authority over him at all because he is the king. But they still want to get rid of him. 
And so in order to try to arrest him, they send people to try to trip him up in his words, but it doesn't work because his divine you know, wisdom is far above them. He is miles ahead of them. All they do is end up looking like fools before him. You see, Mark has been building all of this momentum of, the, of his gospel to this point. It's all been pointing to here because, because to this point, Jesus was a nobody from nowhere and then becomes the most famous person in Judea and everybody wants to be near him. And then there were the whispers. Could this be? Could it be him? Is he the Messiah? And Jesus doesn't initially answer the question. And then he rides into Jerusalem announcing very clearly that he is. And he is now at the height of his popularity with the people and all of the religious political leaders are now on their heels, basically gasping for breath. And in essence, he has everyone's undivided attention in this moment. And now we see the momentum of the story has changed. Where Jesus was was being asked questions and being grilled, he is now on the offensive and he starts asking difficult questions of his own. And he addresses his first questions to the teachers of the law, the intellectuals, the academic elites, the scribes as we have seen. And he asked them about a subject that they know all too well. And that subject is, what is the Messiah or who is the Messiah supposed to be? So again, turn with me to then Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. It says, as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? What you need to realize is this is a continuation of that confrontation that we've been talking about for the last couple weeks. It began on Passion Wednesday, I mean, the Wednesday of Passion Week. And Jesus answers the Sadducees' question about the resurrection. And, and, and then he just answers the question of this one scribe about the greatest commandments. And then and he tells the man he's not far from the kingdom of heaven. And then right after that, he turns to the crowd who've been watching him And he goes from answering questions to actually teaching them about the kingdom of heaven and about the nature of things. And he begins to teach the crowd about the Messiah and who he is. And and he does so by, by asking what might seem to be a strange question. This is why context is so important and kind of putting your, yourself in the situation to the best of your ability. Because this is kind of a strange question. And the question is this, how can the scribe say that the Christ is the son of David? He's asking that. How can you, teachers of the law, you, those who are literate in the scriptures, how can you, experts, say that Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? To which they would answer, well, that's easy, Jesus. Um, we, we say that Christ is the, the, the son of King David because that's what the scriptures say. Right? That would be their answer to the question. It would be a simple question to answer. I mean, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13 say, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for, for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Even early in David's life, the promised Messiah was promised to come from him. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, Of the increase of the government... And of the peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Again, a promise of David being on the throne or or his descendant. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And this is just a few of the scriptures that talk about the Messiah being from the line of David. The scriptures make it clear that the Messiah, the Christ, would be a member of David's family. That he would be a direct descendant of the king. And so everybody knew it. This was common knowledge. In fact, if you remember just a few, you know, weeks ago, the man, the blind man Bartimaeus, He cries out to Jesus as he's coming near. What does he say? He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He does so because he's using a messianic title. He believes that Jesus is the Messiah and he rightfully calls him son of David. 
right? And so the scriptures and the, the common understanding of the people at that time was that the Messiah would come through the line of David. And so it would seem like this is a very easy question to ask. It's actually kind of like a softball question, right? That Jesus just set it up there and he hit it out of the park. That's easy. But really, this is a setup question. Because notice who this question is for. Right? He didn't just ask it generically. He was asking it for a specific group of people. And it is for the scribes. And this is important. Right? In fact, what we're going to see next week is the scribes were highly respected, highly venerated members of the Jewish community. Right? And, and, and the reason for that is because they were experts in the scriptures. They were called teachers of the law. Right? And, and, and they knew the scriptures backwards and forwards, and they knew all the teachings and the traditions and all the arguments that were going around. And they, right, and, and as, as we saw last week, they were the intellectuals of the time. They were the brightest of, of the bright. They were the academics, the scholars, the theologians. I mean, people had, a, if you had a theological question, you'd go to these guys to answer the question. And what they had to say carried a lot of weight into the Jewish community, and they were venerated, and people were expected to stop what they were doing. When they would walk by, you had to stop what you were doing and greet them and say hi to them as they passed by in the street. It really reminds me, actually thinking about this, it reminds me, um, how many of you guys like the Godfather movies? Come on, more than me, please? All right. When Godfather Part Two, there is this one scene where there's, there's this guy, he's like, he runs this part of the city. His name's Don Finucci, right? Everybody's afraid of him. And as he walks down the street in his, in his white suit and his, you know, his, his white clothes, he walks by and people are like, Don Finucci, Don Finucci. And they're shaking his hand. And he's like, you know, he's acknowledging their little peasant presence, but everybody has to show respect to him. That's kind of what I think of when I think about these scribes walking through the city streets of Jerusalem. Everybody has to stop and say hello to them. All right, this is the kind of treatment that the, that the, the scribes were received, and, and, and um, they were the upper crust. They, and, 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 but, but they also knew their stuff. They were theologically brilliant. They knew the scriptures. And so Jesus points them. The point is he asked them a question, and, and the reason why he asked this particular question is because the question he asked about the Messiah would force them to go to the scriptures to support their answer. Because that's the answer to the question. The reason why we believe this is because the scriptures say so. Jesus asked, how can the scribes say the Messiah is the son of David? And the scribes will obviously say, well, it's because it's right there in the text. The text says that. Now, now, given that the scribes would point to the authority of scripture to answer this question, and Jesus is now going to use this scripture and, and the scripture's authority to demonstrate to them and everyone else that there is something that they have actually missed in the text because there is something that they have missed right something foundational that they have missed in the text just like the sadducees if you remember they were experts on the pentateuch the five books of moses right but jesus demonstrates to them right that there is a text in Exodus that supports the resurrection that they missed. They didn't see it or understand it. Jesus is going to use a messianic scripture from the Psalms to demonstrate to the scribes, just like the Sadducees, they have preconceived ideas that has been preventing them from seeing what the text is actually teaching. And let me just pause right there for just a moment. Because this right here, I think, bears some reflection for all of us. You see, the Sadducees had built a complete, you know, theological system based on their understanding of the five books of, of the Bible, the first five. And because of that, they rejected out of hand angels and demons and the sovereignty of God. And also they rejected, more importantly, the afterlife and the resurrection. Right? These men were brilliant, by the way. Like, they were brilliant people. They were great at debaters. They, they, they were able to de successfully defend their theology in debates. Right? And it's the same with the scribes. These men knew their stuff. They knew the scriptures, all of the scriptures. They could quote them just like that. And, and, and they had under, an understanding that the Messiah, right, that he was going to be a man. And that's what they taught. They taught this throughout Judea and Israel. And this teaching that the Messiah was simply going to be a man, a powerful man, but only a man, and that this man would literally come and become the, 
you know, David's heir to the throne in Israel, and that he would literally rule this little tiny nation, and that this nation would become, you know, basically a world superpower again, that he would lead this rebellion that removed all of their oppressors and never to be oppressed again. That's the idea that they're holding on to. That's the idea that they were teaching. And this idea was very, very influential at the time. I mean, even the apostles were influenced by this theology. They, they were really, really drawn in by this theology. If you remember, Jesus talks about his death and resurrection three different times. And all three times, they have no idea what he's, what he's saying. They can't understand what he's talking about. In fact, if you remember, when he first mentions it, what, what's Peter's reaction? He rebukes him, said, no, that's not going to happen to you. He could not understand because his theology was not what Jesus really was. His theology was in line with the common theology of the time. The same thing with James and John. What do they do? Hey, um, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, can we be like the two head honchos along with you? Right? Because they were thinking of a literal, physical kingdom in this world. This was the view of the Messiah. And this was the view that was propounded by, by the scribes. And just like the Sadducees, they had studied the text, right? And they'd use scripture after scripture after scripture to support their understanding. But the problem is they studied the text with a preconceived idea. And because of that, they would read into the text their own ideas about who the Messiah is. They would, they would have these theological lenses that would cause them to see the text a certain way, and they would see in the text that they were expecting to see. That's why the Sadducees could read the law and miss the resurrection and say that it's preposterous, right? Because that's what they already assumed. They already assumed that it was impossible, and they would just go to the text to prove what they, their conclusion was. And that's why the scribes held fast to this teaching, this false view of the Messiah. They assumed it was true, and so they read the text in light of that. Now, here's the thing. Before we're really quick to judge them, we need to recognize the truth, and the truth is this. We are prone, all of us, to this exact same error. Every single one of us are prone to this. Because it's natural for us to, to read into the text our preconceived ideas. People today are looking at the Bible with the lens of what's happening today in the 20th century as if the Bible was written specifically for us in this moment. It is written for us, but it was written for an audience back then. That's the thing we have to remember. But there's a lot of things that we bring to the text that, that are lenses by which that we then take our ideas and put on the text, whether it's our upbringing, whether it's our church traditions that we held from before, whether it's our emotions, whether it's the culture around us, whether it's even the philosophical assumptions that we all have that we're not even aware of that we have. Most people have no idea how deep the influence of postmodern thought is. They have no idea how it's permeated every part of life. Unless you're aware of it, most people are influenced by it. All of these things we bring to the text, and all of these things can influence how we read and understand the Scripture. And that actually has nothing to do with what the text is actually saying. For example, there are people right now who, want to, who will misuse... The text that we read last week, the one about loving your neighbor, is probably one of the most misused texts in the moment right now. Because there are a lot of people who want to throw this text around to end the debate on whether or not we should stay home or whether we shouldn't, or whether or not we should wear a mask or whether we shouldn't, or whether we should gather as a church or whether we, whether we shouldn't. This love your neighbor text is being completely used out of context. People are using it. I mean, I've even heard, I've even heard you know, evangelical leaders who say, the reason why you need to wear a mask is because you need to love your neighbor. And Jesus would have done this. I'm like, that is not what the text is even addressing. That's, that's a misapplication of the text. That is us allowing our emotions to then cause us to read into the text how we feel about it and then use that text to support our own preconceived idea. Another example of this is what many people believe about the end times. Most people have, who have a strong end times perspective, most people, not all of them, but most people who have a strong end times perspective have that perspective, right? Not because of what the text is actually saying, but because that's what they were taught. It's because of what they were taught, and they're reading then the Bible through the lens of the 21st century, right? Let me tell you, end times perspectives are not explicit in the text. If it was, then we wouldn't argue about it. Like, we don't argue about the gospel. 
right? We don't argue about the, the, uh, the divinity of Christ. We don't argue about the authority of Scripture. We don't argue about the essential things of our faith. But there's lots of arguments amongst a lot of people that I know and respect. And the reason why is because it's not apparent or explicit in, in the Scriptures. Right? Most people believe what they believe about the end times, because, because, not because they've actually studied the individual texts and actually exegeted the, the Scriptures in context, and not that they've read all of the articles and books on the, the various positions to really get their heads wrapped around it. They believe what they believe because somebody in church or a pastor or a group of preachers taught them something, a framework that sounded good and made sense to them. Right? And, and, and for, most, for most part, there isn't any critical analysis of what's being taught. It just sounds good and so they adopt it. And because it's a non-essential, there's, there's not really like any hard and fast debate about it. And when you challenge some people about their positions, and I'm telling you, this goes on all sides of the spectrum, you challenge them about their perspective, they, will, they know all the proof texts to support their view, right? But very few can actually take the individual texts and interpret them in context to what they mean to the audience at the time, much less deal with the texts that actually do not support their view. A lot of people come to the Bible with lots of different lenses, and it prevents people from seeing right, what's actually being taught in the text. And I want you to hear me. I'm not at all immune to this. Right? I have battled this issue in my own personal life. One of the doctrines that troubled me early on as a Christian is the sovereignty of God. You talk about something that would get under my skin, it was that one right there. Um, I couldn't reconcile God's sovereignty and my free will. And when I heard people talk about it, it would bother me. It would emotionally twist me up. I mean, it, I didn't like even talking about it. And so I would go to the Bible and I would read it and I would pull out all the texts that I thought that affirmed my particular position and I would use them to try to prove my points. And I would read over the other texts, right, or just kind of interpret them in a different way that wasn't really consistent in order to avoid what they were actually getting at. Now understand, believe me, I was a Christian at the time, and I, I was in Christ, and I know that for, for a fact, and I loved the Word of God, but I certainly had lenses by which I was reading the Bible, and I would read the text not to understand what it was saying, but to confirm my own biases. I had my preconceived ideas, right? That right there, just a technical theological term is called eisegesis. I know you never, I know you never really wanted to know that, but when you hear somebody say that, then you kind of have an understanding, right? It's a simple technical term. It's a practice of, of reading an idea into a text, right? For instance, it's like, you know how when sometimes you talk to someone and you say something to them, and then they think that you know what you mean more than what you actually mean? Like, like, oh, well, that's what you said. Well, that's not what I said. I said this. Well, what you meant was, well, wait a minute. I get to say what I meant, not you, right? Somebody reads into your words what they already preconceived. People do this to the Bible all the time. It's called eisegesis, right? It's the practice of reading something into the text. And believe me, I was really, really, really guilty of that, right? But then, praise the Lord, I was exposed to a lot of different preachers, right, who had who began to handle a text in a way that made me, made my heart like really like pound. Like I was excited to hear the word of God. And what, one of the things they had in common was, is all of them had the same effort. They were trying to exposit the text. They were, it's called expository preaching, right? It's this idea that they were trying to preach what was in the text and not try to tell me what they thought was in the text, right? And I was introduced to this idea of what's called exegesis. It's the opposite of eisegesis. Exegesis is reading in, I mean, exegesis is reading something from the text that's already there and drawing it out. Exegesis is reading what's actually in the text itself. On the one hand, what you have is this idea that people are reading things into the text and you're shaping your understanding of the text by your ideas first. On the other hand, you're allowing the text to speak for itself and your ideas are being shaped then by the truth that's contained in there. One perspective, you're taking your thoughts and you're shaping the text. The other way is the text is shaping you. Does that make sense? Okay. That right there, that type of an approach set my heart free to be able to actually pursue what God was actually saying in the text. And over time, I became 
committed to allowing the text to shape me. Whether I liked it or not, whether I agreed with what God was saying or not, whether it made me feel good or not, I said, Lord, you were Lord, I'm going to take your word and I'm going to bend myself to it. And that meant coming to the text of Scripture with the intention of trying to understand what the author was saying to the people he was saying it to at the time when they wrote it. It also meant that I had to actually take my preconceived ideas and purposely set them aside. I had to take my emotions about things and say, okay, it doesn't matter what I feel, right? I had to take my traditions and the things that I had been taught before and say, okay, I know that's what my understanding is, but I set that aside and say, is that really what the text is actually teaching? I had to, to begin asking questions like, what is the text actually saying? Right? Not what I think that it says, not what I want it to say. There's a lot of things I wish this, the text would say differently. But what does the text actually say in its context? And then how does that text connect with the overall whole of the scripture? So it's not just an isolated thing, that it actually fits. And by taking that approach and submitting myself to believe what the text actually taught, and then reading with that approach the book of John and the book of Romans, especially the book of Romans, um, and then the pastoral epistles and many of the other books of the Bible, Allowing the text to speak for me, I, I came to the inescapable conclusion that God is completely sovereign, whether I want him to be or not. Right? Because that's what the text says. Like if you read it openly and objectively, you can't escape the conclusion that that's what the text says. I don't have to do any gymnastics to make it say that. It just says it. And, and, and though I, I do have a certain sense of free will, right, even that is governed by God's sovereignty. God is completely sovereign over everything. And guess what? Because it's that way, I'm okay with it now. Because why? Because it's God, and he said it, and I'm okay with it. See, it, I don't believe that truth because it was easy for me to believe. I believe because that's what the Bible teaches. And, and the same way that we go to support the doctrine of the Trinity is the same way that we find God's sovereignty in the text. When we let the text speak for itself, the truth comes crystal clear. It comes out. As Christians, we must do we must do what we can do to remove the things that get in the way of our understanding of the text. That means we need to stop allowing politics to define our theology. Right? And if you can't say amen to that, then you've got to say ouch. Right? Right now, churches across America are embracing the BLM movements and social justice and even outright Marxist groups because of their hatred for one man, Donald Trump. The whole racial division that's being promoted within the church right now is purely political. It's driven by politics. And their politics is driving their theology. By the same token, though, there are Christians and even churches who will absolutely lose their minds on you if you were to say the phrase, even though that Donald Trump supports Christians, and I'm grateful for that, I don't think that that man's actually a Christian. Right? People get really, really, really upset and mad when you say things like that. Right? And they'll be like, well, wait a minute. Of course he's a Christian. He's for Christians. That didn't make him a Christian. Right? Well, he's he got to be a Christian because God put him there. God put Obama there too because you remember God is sovereign and nations rise up at his will and, and leaders rise up at his will. God is the one who works things, things out. Just because we would like for him to be a Christian doesn't make him that. We need to pray for him. We need to pray that he repents and believes the gospel as well. But it doesn't mean that he's a Christian. We cannot allow our politics and the way that we want to see the world shape our theology. It also means we have to stop allowing our emotions to define our theology. How you feel don't matter. I mean, your feelings are important, but what, how, you're, what, how you feel about what the Bible says doesn't matter. The truth is the truth. The truth is the truth is the truth is the truth. We must conform our feelings to that. Right? The only way that a person can deny, deny God's justice and his wrath and to deny the doctrine of hell is to allow your emotions to cloud how you read the text. There, I've heard people say, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about hell. I'm going, did you actually read this? Because Jesus said more about hell than he did heaven. How, how, do you, how do you even, it's because of our emotions. We also need to stop allowing culture to define our theology. The Bible is crystal clear about what marriage is supposed to be. The Bible is crystal clear that he made us male and female, and that doesn't change based on our feelings. The Bible is crystal clear that that, that, that there is a leadership structure for the home. 
and that men are to lead their families. That's clear. But men are also to lead their families like Christ does the church. Because culturally speaking, on the other side of that coin, some people think that being the leader of your family means you always have to be obeyed no matter what. You can never be questioned. And somehow, that makes the man the absolute despot in their house. And no one can ever say anything no matter what. Let me be very, really clear. The Bible paints a picture of marriage where men lead like Christ. That's through love and patience and sacrifice and long-suffering and incredible tenderness. We must never allow the culture around us, even if we love the culture, to define how we read the Bible. We must do our best to our abilities to take our preconceived ideas and set them to the side. Otherwise, we're going to read right into the text the things that we already think. We're just going to read right into there the things that we... I mean, I, I, still have, I still have people say to me, I don't think they're Christians. I'm going, okay, you need to be really careful when you say that. Why do you think that? Well, because they do this. Well, how, about, how come when you do this? They can say the same thing about you. You need to be really careful about how you say that, what you read into that. Remember Jesus said, and this one you can take to the bank. Take that two by four out of your own eye before you start trying to pick specks out of people's eye, right? We need to not allow ourselves to read into the scriptures the things that we want to see, right? And that's what the scribes have done here. They have read, they, they have a predetermined theology, and so they read the text the way they want to. But notice what Jesus says, right? He says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, this is a verse I want you to know, like I've read past like a thousand times. But I want, you, I want you to like get into the moment here. I want you to think about what's happening here. This is so clever. This is brilliant. This is Jesus being absolutely, amazingly brilliant here. Okay, Because what does Jesus do? He takes them to a psalm, right? A psalm that they're going to be familiar with in order to draw their attention to something that they have missed, something that they have overlooked, something that they are blind to, right? And what you need to realize is that, that Jesus... He's quoting from Psalm 110, verse 1, right? And it reads almost exactly like he said, right? It says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, right? It's almost exactly word for word. And what you need to realize is this text was accepted almost universally as a messianic text at the time. It was considered a text about the Messiah. And people accepted that all the way up until the Jews until the Jews changed their mind about this after the resurrection of Christ. They began to change how they interpret this text after that. Guess why? Because this was a text that the church was using and preaching to prove who Jesus was. This was a passage, it was a problem for the Jews. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but this was the most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. It was quoted over and over again in Acts and Hebrews and Romans, Ephesians and 1 Corinthians. That's why the Jews changed their understanding of, of, of this text because of Christ's resurrection. It was clearly about him. But before that, practically speaking, everybody accepted that this was a text about the Messiah. And so Jesus, okay, he quotes this messianic text, right? And, 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 but, but, but also notice he doesn't just quote it. He establishes the authority of the text, he doesn't just say, hey, here's what it says. Notice he says that David himself declared. This is important because, because Jesus appeals to David's own words and David's own authority. And this is important for us, especially today, because there are scholars, modern scholars, who'd like to say that's a late text that was not written by David and it was written about David. That's a lot of what many, many uh, skeptical scholars have to say. But there's a couple of foundational rules for Bible interpretation that you need to understand. And that is, we need to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. And the second rule is, the greatest interpreter of Scripture is Christ himself. Right? And what we see is Jesus gives an interpretation of Scripture that's the best interpretation. And you know why? Because he's the author, ultimately. Getting right, right from the horse's mouth, so to speak. And what we see here is Jesus confirms for us that David is, in fact, the human author of the text. And so the psalm isn't about David himself. The psalm is by David, and it's about the Messiah. And I believe that we should take Jesus' word for it. Secondly, I want you to notice that he, he said that David is 
is the human author, but he said that he did this in the Holy Spirit, right? And what Jesus is saying is David's word were not simply his own, but they were inspired by God himself. In other words, Jesus is basically saying that what David's saying here is theonustos, that, that God is speaking through David in this moment. That's what Jesus is saying, which means this text is absolutely, unequivocally authoritative. It's undeniable, right? So I want you to think about what's happening here. Because Jesus now set his own trap. Jesus asked them the softball question. Think about what's happening. He asked them the softball question about who the Messiah is, right? And, and how can he be the son of David? The scribes would answer, well, that's easy. The scriptures say that, right? Because the scripture has authority. Then Jesus would say, you know what? Scripture does have authority. And here's a scripture you're familiar with, a scripture that's about the Messiah. And Jesus said, and by the way, this is the words of David spoken by God through David, right? And then he quotes the scripture, and this is the moment when everybody in the crowd would have been going, yep, that's right, that's right, that's right, we get it, yep, uh-huh, you're right, Jesus. And while they're in agreement, while they would be nodding their heads, then Jesus drops the bomb on them and says, wait a minute, David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? What you have to realize is this would have been one of those moments when everyone around him would have like suddenly stopped talking and all of the action around them would have ceased because everybody would have been fixed on Jesus in that moment because this is not at all where, where they were expecting for him to go. Jesus asked the question, right? And the scribes have nothing to say, right? They're not prepared for this question. All of the people who were there watching this conversation are now staring at the scribes now with great anticipation because they weren't expecting this either. In fact, look what it says. It says, and the great throng heard him gladly. What you need to realize is the scribes culturally had to be respected by their traditions, but the average person didn't like them. They didn't care for them because they thought, that they thought these men were arrogant and conceited and full of themselves. And in this moment, they were enjoying these men being stumped. They were enjoying seeing these men squirm. And these men were squirming in this moment because they didn't know how to answer this question. Jesus had taken a scripture that they had been familiar with, one that they could probably recite off the top of their heads, and he's taken this and used it to shatter their preconceived ideas. Because look at the text, the text that they were familiar with but never thought about. Notice what it says about the Messiah. The Lord said to my Lord... Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. In this divinely inspired psalm, King David calls the Messiah Lord. In fact, the way that the text reads actually is the Lord Yahweh said to my Lord Adonai. What he's saying is God said to my Lord. You see, what happens in this text is David himself is calling the Messiah his own Lord, his own master, his own owner. And the thing that you need to understand is that in the first century culture, well, even in David's culture before that, a man would never call his son Lord. A man would not call his grandson Lord or his great-grandson. He wouldn't call any of his own descendants Lord. That didn't happen. Sons called their dad Lord. Students called their teacher master. Slaves called their, their masters Lord. But to call someone Lord meant that you were acknowledging they were superior to you in some fashion. That you were inferior to them in structure or in rank in some fashion. To call someone Lord was a sign of submission and fathers didn't submit to their sons. It was the other way around. And here we have David, who is the ancestor of the Messiah, who, who, who in essence is his father, the father of the Messiah, calling his own offspring Lord. This was scandalous to think about. This was unheard of. Which means that when David says this, he's acknowledging that this Messiah must be greater or superior in some way to the king. Now, how would that be possible? Because this, this is King David. He was the, king, the greatest king of all kings. He was the leader that everybody else was compared to. He was, he was a man after God's own heart. Even God said that. 
He's the one who slew Goliath. I mean, who's, who's greater than that? But here he is calling his own offspring Lord. And this right, it's right there in the text, right in the same text that they would have been familiar with. Why had they not seen that before? Why hadn't they questioned that before? It's because they already had a preconceived idea about what their theology was, and they were reading that into the text and just read over this text. They didn't question it. They never thought about this question in that sense. David calls him Lord because he's superior to David. Well, how is he superior? Well, the text itself tells us. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. God in heaven says to the Messiah, David's son, David's Lord, sit at my right hand. Now, get to understand, in heaven there is no such thing as a literal throne room, right? God the Father does not sit on an actual throne. He is spirit, right? He doesn't have a physical body in the sense that we understand it. He doesn't actually have a right hand. So what does it mean then? What's he saying then? Sit at my right hand. Well, God is using a metaphor. God is using a metaphor that kings would have understood at the time. And what they understood was symbolically, but the king's right hand was the position of power, the position of authority. God is saying to the Messiah, sit at my right, right hand. And this is the equivalent of saying, you have divine authority. You have divine power. David himself is saying that the Messiah, the Lord, has divine authority. He has divine power. Well, who possibly can have divine power? God himself is the only one who can have divine power. Who can possibly forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. Who has the ability to create something out of nothing? Only God can do that. Who has the ability to give life? Only God can do that. Who controls creation by his word? Only God himself. Who's sovereign over the material world and the spiritual world? God. Who's omniscient and knows all the thoughts of men? Only God. The conclusion of Jesus' question is inescapable. How can you say that the Messiah is just a man? That's the essence of his question. How can you say that he's just a man? How can you say that he's only a human ancestor of David when David himself calls him Lord? And when he calls him Lord, he's calling him God. This is the crescendo of this entire, of this entire section here. Right? This is a crescendo that would have rocked their world. Jesus is not only claiming to be the Messiah, but he's claiming to be the son of the living God, God incarnate, God in the flesh. And that is what you need to know. Right? And that's what you need to believe in order to cross the threshold into the kingdom. That the Jesus we serve, the Jesus that we love, the Jesus we put our hearts into, He's not just some man who did something for us. He is God in the flesh that came to rescue us. You can see that religion is vanity. You can see the greatest commandments are to love God and to love other people. You can see that your inability to keep the law is fruitless. And you can see and believe that Jesus, you know, is someone historically who came into the world and died on the cross. But if you do not believe that he is God incarnate, the divine son of God, you don't have entrance into the kingdom no matter how close you might get. Brothers and sisters, this is the dividing line for us. This is the dividing line that takes us from the realm of the world into the realm of the kingdom. Our, our Jehovah's Witness friends will say that Jesus is a created being, Michael the archangel, that he is not God. And for all of their devotion, and for all of their work, and for all of their commitments, and for all of their, uh, of their sincerity to believe what they believe, they are not in the kingdom. They are bound still right now for eternal torments. They can call their buildings kingdom halls, but they're not in the kingdom. Our LDS friends, some of the nicest people that we know, some of the most devoted people we know, they think Jesus was just a man who worked his way to godhood like his father before him. But they don't think that Jesus is the eternal second member of the Trinity. Brothers and sisters, as much as we love them and as much as we, we, you know, we see how, how friendly and loving they can be, they are not in the kingdom. And they, with, along with their families, unless they repent and believe the gospel, are bound for the fires of hell. That should break your heart. 
But there are still others, others in our community, who believe that Jesus is God, but they deny that he's the second member of the Trinity. They believe that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all the same person, that there's no distinction between them. They deny the distinction between the Father and the Son, and the, the distinction between the, the Son and the Holy Spirit. They deny the essence of who God is. That means they are not in the kingdom. Hear me. They're not. They might be close to the kingdom. They might be like the scribe standing next to the kingdom. But until they understand who Christ really is and who God really is, they are not in the kingdom. But worst of all, I fear that there are many who flock to the churches who at one point in their life made a profession of faith, who might have prayed some sinner's prayer, who think that they're in the kingdom, but then live unchanged, unrepentant lives. They say, I'm a Christian, but they never, ever bear any fruits. There never seems to be a need of a repentance in their life, and I'm afraid that they're among the ones that Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Why do I believe that? Because I don't believe that they know who Christ is. Because there are people who've bought into the notion that you can make Jesus Christ your Savior, but you don't have to make him your Lord. That's what many people believe in our country today, that you can make Jesus your Savior. He can be your buddy, but, you don't have, but he doesn't have to be your Lord. Lots of people want God in certain dimensions. They want the God of love, but they don't want the God of justice. They want the God of grace, but they don't want the God of wrath. They want the God who's tender, but they don't want the God who we need to stand in reverential fear of. And people want their Jesus the same way. Some people want Jesus to be the Savior, Jesus to be their homeboy, but not the Jesus who is the sovereign reigning Lord. But notice David himself calls the Messiah, Jesus the Son, calls him Lord. Adonai. Why? Because he is. Which means he is the Lord of all. He can't be your Savior unless he's your Lord. You can't have one without the other. Because if he's not your Lord, then he's nothing to you. As the saying goes, if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. But the truth is, Jesus Christ is, in fact, as we declare openly over and over again, the sovereign reigning king. He is the disputed, undisputed Lord of the universe. He is the king of kings. And he's the king of his own kingdom. And to come into that kingdom... We must acknowledge him for who he is and what he has done for us by faith and turn to him and place all of our hope and trust in him and him alone. That's all we have. And then we can be saved. As Remember what Paul said, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So who is Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is a physical son of David, but he's also the divine son of God. And that he's the undisputed Lord of all things. That's the answer to the question. Now, I think there's a lot of different ways you can answer that. I think, that they think those are the essential things that we need to understand. So now quickly, let us just take a moment and apply these things, what we've learned here. There are three things I'm going to leave you with this week in light of this text. Who would have thought I would have got so much out of like three verses, right? Three things. Number one is... I want to exhort you to set aside your preconceived ideas when you begin to read the Bible and study your texts. I want you to purposely come to the text and say, you know, Lord, I want to know what you're actually saying. And, I, and to the best of my ability, I want to set aside the things that actually shape what I'm thinking already. I want to actually like, go to the text in context and understand what it is you're telling me. Right? Which means that we have to set aside our emotions. Right? I'm going to tell you, like I wrestled. Before I, you know, I really had a, a point of view on, you know, on Paul's leadership structure for the church, I didn't really have an opinion about it. And then I read 1 Timothy, right? And there was a part of 1 Timothy that I wrestled with and wrestled with and wrestled with and wrestled with and read commentary after commentary and prayed about and prayed about and I finally understood that the text says what it says, right? That God has a leadership structure in the family and also in the church and that's the way that it is. Whether I agree with it or not, that's, it's irrelevant, I take my emotions and set it aside and let God be God. It's the same thing with politics. I have deep convictions about a lot of things about what's right and wrong in our country here. 
Right? But the reality is, is my allegiance is to him first above all other things. And I understand no matter who becomes the president, God is in control of that. Right? And that God will raise up nations and he will tear nations down. And by the way, no nation's ever survived its own success. Do you know why? Because God shares his glory with no one. Right? And when, when nations become puffed up and proud and think that they can live without him, then God judges them. And so with that being said, we need to take our political aspirations and views and set them aside. I mean, I think that you should be passionate. I think that you should vote for who you believe that, you know, and I think that there's a clear choice. I think that the defining issue that should drive our politics is the sanctity of life. I believe that, you know, that God will judge our nation for slaughtering babies. I think that should be a prime moving factor in your politics. But in that being said, people have to come to terms on that on their own. We also just set aside our upbringing. Because sometimes the things that grandma said to us ain't really the truth. I know my grandma told me some things that don't really jive with what the Bible said. Right? I mean, my, my grandma's boyfriend at one time, who was an itinerant preacher, was telling me when I was a kid, when I was chewing tobacco, he said, you know why you spit that stuff out, boy, don't you? I said, why? He's because you're chewing on the devil's toenails and that juice is too hot, so you got to spit it out. That's in the Bible. I like, okay. I took his word for it for a while. <laughs> I got lots of those kind of stories, by the way. <laughs> it's no wonder why I was an atheist for a period of uh, time in my life, all right? So we also have to set aside our traditions as well. I mean, the reality is, is I'm a Baptist, okay? Now, I didn't start off as a Baptist. It's just I became convicted, convinced of the, of the Baptist's, you know, uh, theology. And more specifically, as time has gone on, as I've got, gained a higher view of Scripture and a higher view of God, I've been more towards the Reformed uh, uh, version of being a Baptist. But in that being said, that does not drive my theology. What drives my theology is what the text is actually telling me. It just happens that, my, that, that, that what, what this text is saying lines up with what other people have said. And I go, that makes sense. I agree with that. But still, I'm a Christian first, submitted to the Word of God first. And then we have to then set aside what the culture is pushing on us. Brothers and sisters, the culture is pushing on us eight ways from Sunday. And I'm telling you, Christians or people that call themselves Christians are buying into it. Don't believe me? If we don't figure this out, we're going to be a Marxist nation very soon. And soon after that, we'll be a communist nation. Because once the, Mar once the socialists take over, then they take the, they take the guns and then there's no more choice. It's a natural progression. It's a historical reality. There's no, this is not politics, this is just what history has done. The fact of the matter is, is and the church is buying into it because of this sense of, of misapplied priorities. We gotta realize that culture, we're gonna be the oddball all the time. We're gonna have to be countercultural. And then we also need to come to the word with the attitude that, you know, it's gonna shape me and not the other way around. Now, secondly, I think besides setting aside our preconceived ideas, we need to allow the word of God to speak for itself. We need to let the text speak about God's sovereignty. We need to let the text speak about heaven and hell. We need to let the text speak about what marriage is and what the family is. We need to let the text speak about who we are. Like, it's not a, a pleasant thing to learn. You're a filthy wretch, right? We think of ourselves as good people. But if you... Don't allow the text speak, you're going to be deceived. Third, I think, and I think this is probably the most important one, is we need to submit ourselves to Christ's lordship in our life. Not to just say that he's just my savior, but he's my lord. And then I'm going to go where he leads me. I'm going to go where he calls me. And I'm going to walk in obedience and holiness. Not because I'm going to make him love me, but because he's rightfully my king and I love him. And he's rescued me from the depths of hell. And I have nothing but nothing left but to give him my allegiance. Right? That we submit to his lordship because it glorifies him. And ultimately, it benefits us. <laughs> the thing that we have to realize as is, is people is what glorifies God ultimately works out for our best interest. Right? John Piper, I think has a great way of putting this. You know, he said that God is most glorified in us. We're most satisfied in him. When Christ is our greatest treasure, right, we reap the benefits of that intimacy and, and closeness to him. And we also reap the benefits of him being glorified in our lives. But we can't 
glorify God if we're not willing to submit to his lordship, which means there comes a time where we have to say, okay, Lord, this is what I want to do, but I know that you're calling me to do this. And so, Lord, to the best of my ability, I'm going to submit to this, and I'm going to ask that you change my heart and give me repentance when I fail to do this. We need to allow God to be, Christ to be the Lord of our lives because he is the sovereign reigning king. And if we would do that, I think then this church would be a beacon of hope for the world around us. And by the way, brothers and sisters, as much as we're hoping for things to go back to normal, I'm right with you. As much as we're hoping for elections to go certain ways, as much as we're hoping for to be able to go sit down and eat dinner somewhere, right? As much as we're hoping for, for, for not to live under the threat of tyranny, our hope is none of those things. Our hope is nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.